guys. It was very nice. Uh, This is part three of our Unstuck sermon series. During this series, we're looking at the areas of our life where we get stuck. Uh, We're identifying the sins that hold us back from living the way God wants us to live. We're looking at the attitudes and actions that keep us from becoming all God wants us to be. And then we're looking for ways to get unstuck. We're taking simple, powerful truths from the Bible, linking them up with key areas of our life and uh, trying to make the changes that God wants us to make that we want to make in our lives. And when we apply God's word to our lives, when we allow the Holy Spirit to release his power in our lives, we begin to change. We move, you move out of the rut that you're in and you get on track with God's wonderful purpose that he wants to accomplish in your life. Our key passage for this study is found in Galatians chapter 5. We've been uh, working through this uh, verse. It's just uh, this passage, just a few verses. We're concentrating on it for nine weeks, kind of digging in deep, doing some word studies, and uh, reading the material. Hopefully in your small groups, you've been reading the verses out loud together. We're going to do that here today. Uh, I like to read scripture out loud together. I think it unites us as the body of Christ. It helps us to focus on the words. I think it's an effective uh, form of worship. And so we're going to read a couple of sections out loud today, a little longer than some that we normally read. Normally it's just a verse or two, but we're going to uh, read through here. And just tell you, it's not a race, not in a hurry, no prize for the person who gets done first. And uh, we're just going to uh, read through, uh, observe the commas, take a breath, and uh, consider God's word together. So, uh, so here we go. Let's uh, take a look at this. So I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The flesh and the spirit are in constant opposition to one another. There is a war, a struggle, a spiritual battle that rages in your life. Between your flesh, which wants to gratify its desires, and between your spirit, and especially the, the Holy Spirit. And when, when you place your trust in Jesus Christ, your spirit comes alive and the Holy Spirit comes uh, to live within you, reside within you. And so your flesh wants to fulfill its desire, and and the spiritual side of you wants to do what God wants you to do. And the flesh and the spirit are in constant conflict with one another. There's no ceasefire. There's no peace treaty. The flesh and the spirit will be at odds as long as you are alive. That's just the way it is. And so if you're struggling in some area of sin, that's actually a good sign. It's actually a good sign because, first of all, it means you haven't surrendered to the flesh. It means you're fighting. And it also means that you have something to fight with because unbelievers, the spiritual side is dead. The Holy Spirit is not in their life. They've got nothing to fight with. Now, hopefully, as you live the Christian life, you begin to gain victory in some of these areas. There are sins and behaviors that you begin to set aside. There are hurts, habits, and hang-ups that you recover from. And we all have our struggles, but we're not the people that we used to be. We are becoming more and more like Christ. And I know it's really humbling, or it sounds really proud, one or the other, when you say that. But becoming like Christ is God's plan for us. And the struggle that Paul outlines in Galatians 5 is part of God's plan to get us there. 
So you want to celebrate your victories. Celebrate your victories and recognize the areas where the battle still rages. Because we all have sins where we get stuck in the muck and mire of the flesh and, and we just can't seem to break free. But God's plan is for us to get unstuck. In Galatians 5, Paul, Paul lists uh, these sticky areas for us. And uh, so let's, let's read through this one, uh, this section. This one's not as much fun, okay? The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Oh, I'm sorry, did I miss something? Okay. So it, it becomes easy for us to, uh, to fall off the extremes of the spectrum when, when you read through a list like this. I mean, th- this isn't the only place where Paul gives us a list of sins. Uh, you know, he, he seems to like to just, just kind of create this laundry list, grocery list of sin, just to uh, impress upon us the dilemma that we're faced with. And, and the problem is, is we can read these lists and we can think, well, I'm not that bad, so I must be okay. But the reality is, Paul is talking about all of us when he lays out this list. I've said it before, I'll say it right now. It's not a matter of degree, it's a matter of condition. The problem isn't that I am a horrible sinner, the problem is I'm a sinner. Jesus says that a little sin contaminates your life. Don't be tricked by your flesh into thinking that the size of your sin doesn't matter, because it does. No sin is so small that it doesn't contaminate your life. No sin is so small that it doesn't affect your relationship with God. So don't fall off that extreme, but don't go to the other extreme. You know, no sin is so big it can't be forgiven or overcome. Sometimes people live with these, these horrible sins in their life and, and they cover up these serious, gaping spiritual wounds and they try to pretend like they aren't there because they don't think they can be addressed. They don't think God can help them. And you, you read through this list, there's horrible things on this list. And, and the truth is, those horrible, horrible things are happening in our lives right here in this church. They are. But God offers us hope. Paul says this, I'll read this next one alone. He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This week I was looking at the phrase, I warn you, as I did before. And it's interesting because the the way it's structured, it doesn't mean that it's repetitive. It's not like Paul says, I've told you over and over and over about this. It's not what he's saying. It's not repetitive, it's predictive. When I came to understand it, it it reminded me of what my mother used to say. When I was a kid and did something wrong, you know, when I broke a vase or tracked mud in the house or wrecked the car, I I can still hear my mom saying, I knew you would do that. Okay. Anybody else's mother ever say that? I knew you would do that. And she didn't know I would do that exact, that, that thing. She just knew me. She knew my tendency. She knew my default behavior. 
And that's what Paul's saying here. You know, God's expressing the same kind of thing in Galatians 5 when he gives us this yucky list of the acts of the flesh. God knows our tendencies. God knows our default behavior. God knows our bent towards sin. And why do you think God issued the Ten Commandments? Don't worship other gods. Don't make any idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. Why did God say not to do those things? Because God knew he would. He knew the, the, the tendency. He knew our bent would be to do those things. And that's why he commands us not to do them. Same's true here in Galatians 5. The reason all these acts of the flesh are in this list is because God knows our heart. God knows our tendency, our weakness. And what is God's response when we do them? Is he shocked? Is he surprised? Is he stunned? Caught off guard? No. No. He knew we'd do it. It's a great story out of the life of Christ. You may remember this. It's found in John chapter 8. Scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand in the center of the court, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women to death. So what do you say to do with her? What is your sentence? They said this to him to test him, hoping that they would have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus, stooping down, stooped down and began writing on the ground with his finger. However, they persisted in questioning him. He straightened up and said, He who is without any sin among you, anybody here who's not on the list, let him throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and started writing on the ground. They listened to his reply, and they began to go out one by one, starting with the oldest first. The oldest left first because they're the wisest and because they got more sin than anybody else. Until he was left alone with the woman standing there before him in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? She answered, "No, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. You know, people think God wants to condemn us for our sin. That that God is somehow setting a trap with sin to catch us when we do something wrong so he can punish us. Aha, caught you. God isn't interested in condemning you. He doesn't have to. The Bible says that your sin condemns you. God doesn't condemn you. It's your own sin that condemns you. God sent Jesus Christ into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God understands our dilemma. God understands where we get stuck. And God doesn't condemn us when we get stuck. God gives us the power to get unstuck. Just look at the contrast in Galatians 5. The the acts of the flesh are obvious, and they're just this horrible list. And then it says, but. I think the most beautiful word in the Bible is the word but. 
I just do. I mean, all the way through the Bible, we have presented to us the the horrible dilemma that we find ourselves in. And all the way through the Bible, we find these great words, but God. But God. 2 Corinthians 7, we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. 2 Samuel 4, like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. 2 Chronicles, for the battle is not yours, but God's. 2 Thessalonians, pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Colossians 2, you were once dead because of your failures and your corrupt nature. But God made you alive with Christ when he forgave all our failures. Nehemiah 6, they thought we would give up and not finish the work, but God made me strong. Galatians 5, the acts of the flesh are obvious. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, what's the dilemma? The dilemma is where we get stuck. What's the solution? How do we get unstuck? The solution to our dilemma is not to try harder. The solution to our dilemma is not to be better or do gooder. The the only way we get unstuck from our acts of the flesh is by the acts of God. The acts of the flesh are obvious, but the fruit of the Spirit. We learned last week that one of the fruit of the Spirit is love. and, And we learned that human emotion, human love, human lust is not enough. If you're trying to love people with your love, your love is going to run out. Your love is going to fade. Your love will not be sufficient to carry you through. Your love will fail you. But God offers you a greater love. And you've got to let the Holy Spirit bear the fruit of God's love within you. Only way you can love the unlovely, the only way you can love your enemies, the only way you can love those who persecute you, the only way you can love with a love that is patient and kind and humble and secure and forgiving and pure, a love that protects, trusts, hopes, and lasts, a love that endures, is you've got to let God love you and then love other people through you. Last week, we looked at the fruit of joy. People, people say, I just want to be happy. And, and what they mean is, I just want my circumstances to change. I just want to be able to do what I want to do and not suffer the consequences. I just want to be able to fulfill the desire of the flesh and not have any negative results. I just want to be happy. But God wants to give me joy. Never settle for human happiness instead of God's joy. Because God's joy will be there regardless of your circumstances. Joy doesn't come from what's happening to you or around you. Joy comes from what's happening within you. It's the fruit of the Spirit within you. Love, joy. Today we're going to look at the fruit of peace. Fruit of peace. On your notes, what is peace? First, peace is wholeness. It's wholeness. 
Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. You know, the peace sought in these verses is much more than the the mere absence of conflict. It it is a completeness. It's a health of justice, a a prosperity, a protection, a serenity. It's a wholeness, a peace the world can't provide. Real peace comes from faith in God because God alone embodies all the characteristics of peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And to find peace of mind and peace with others you got to first find peace with God. you got to be made whole. I, I put together the, the small group outlines and the sermon outlines a few weeks ago, but even before I, I left for India. And at that time, I, I felt led to include this verse about the peace of Jerusalem. And there are 249 verses in the Bible that talk about peace. And I was even struggling with why am I focusing on one verse about praying for the peace of Jerusalem? And now a few weeks later, I I kind of understand why God was laying that one on my heart. Because the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, and especially the people of Israel are the key to understanding what's happening in the world. They're the key to understanding ancient history. They're the key to understanding the 20th century and what's happened so far in the 21st century. Jerusalem and Israel, the Jews, and the Middle East are right in the forefront of what's happening in our day. Jerusalem's one of the oldest cities on earth. It was established in the 4th century B.C., before Christ. I mean, that's old. And during its long history, Jerusalem has been destroyed, I mean, flattened twice besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. And today, the peace of Jerusalem is at risk. Jerusalem and Israel are coming under a threat more dangerous, more devastating than any they have ever faced before. A nuclear Iran threatens the very existence of Israel. This week, Russian planes and Iranian troops moved uh, into Syria. I mean, that ups the danger for Israel. Now, personally, I I don't get caught up in the study of the end times. I I just don't. Jesus said he didn't know when he's coming back. He said the angels don't know, only God knows. I figure, why am I trying to, you know, spend my time to figure out something that Jesus says he doesn't know? And the truth is, Jesus never commanded me to try to figure out when he's coming back. He commanded me and commissioned me to preach the gospel to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And he commanded and commissioned you to do that too. And folks, we're not on the date and place committee. We're on the welcoming committee. It's our job to preach the gospel so that as many people as possible are ready to receive Christ when he returns. And so I, I don't fret about the end times. I mean, I know the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I know our country is headed down the tube. I know our culture is becoming more and more godless. I understand I am losing my freedoms. I fully expect to be persecuted, even jailed because of my Christian faith. That is no surprise to me. It's no surprise to God. So my job is not to stop the end times 
from happening or to figure out when they happen. My job is to preach the gospel so people are ready when they happen. But I also understand from this passage that I have an obligation to the nation of Israel. I have an obligation to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. When I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it releases a peace and a security in my own life. God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Frankly, I want to be on the blessing side. Okay? I'm not looking to be cursed. Now, I understand that we're in the thick of the school year. I know it's soccer and football season for your kids. The Chiefs are playing. The Royals are in the playoffs. Things are hectic at work. And, and I know there's been a lot of stuff in the news this week. We've got a gazillion people running for president. Uh, the Pope has been here. There's a uh, hurricane in the Atlantic. There's another school shooting this week. There's a lot going on. But as your pastor, I really want to encourage you to carve out about 45 minutes this week and go to cspan.org, c-span.org, and watch Benjamin Netanyahu's speech to the UN. Benjamin Netanyahu is the prime minister uh, from Israel. And there are a lot of things in the news that are going to be here today and gone tomorrow. But Benjamin Netanyahu gave a speech for the ages. And I want to just encourage you to listen to it and pray accordingly. Our peace, our peace is not the absence of conflict. It it is a deep, abiding, internal, wholeness kind of peace. That's what we need to latch on to. Because on your notes, because peace is resting in God's sovereignty. Jesus said, I am leaving you with a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift from Christ. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give isn't fragile like the peace the world gives. So don't be troubled or afraid. Just like love doesn't come from yourself, it comes from God. Just like joy doesn't come from your circumstances, it doesn't come from yourself, it comes from God. Same is true with the peace of Christ. It's a fruit of of the Spirit. People often pursue peace and quiet. They think if I can just get out of their circumstances, if I can just get out of the hustle and bustle, the noise and racket, if I can just find some peace and quiet. The problem with pursuing peace and quiet is it only lasts as long as the peace and quiet lasts. As soon as you come back into the normal activities of everyday life, it's gone. It vanishes. But the result of the Holy Spirit's work in our life is a deep and lasting peace. It's a confident assurance in any circumstance. It's resting in God's sovereignty. With Christ's peace, we have no no need to fear the present or the future. Corey Ten Boom survived the Holocaust in World War II was in a concentration camp, survived it, came out, lived well into her 80s, just to a nice, ripe old age. Corey Ten Boom said, If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. If you look at Christ, you will be at rest. You and I need to recognize, as the world falls apart, he's got the whole world in his hands. 
even if it's crumbling into pieces. We need to rest in the sovereignty of God. Peace is the calming of internal conflict. Philippians 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Sin, fear, uncertainty, doubt, all all those forces are at war within us. I mean, you read through the acts of the flesh, and by their very nature, they disturb and destroy our peace. The acts of the flesh create conflict, anxiety, tension, stress, but the peace of God moves into our heart and mind, and it restrains the hostile forces of the flesh, and it offers us comfort. It offers us peace. Jesus Christ says, if you'll pursue me through prayer and petition and thanksgiving, if you'll keep your eyes focused on me, I'll give you peace that you won't even understand. It's a calming, the internal conflict. Finally, peace is reconciliation with God. I was thinking this week, what's the very best emotion that a person can experience? Because the fruit of the Spirit, most of these are emotions. And this is an emotional series. What's the very best emotion that a person can experience? You might say, well, it's love, or it's delight, or joy, or contentment, or accomplishment. Let me offer you this option for the very best emotion that a person can feel. Relief. Relief. It's it's such a positive emotion Relief is the key ingredient in art and entertainment. Great books, excuse me. Great books, great stories, great movies, great TV shows, great operas, great symphonies, great works of art, great roller coasters are all built on the basis of tension and release. You know, they build the tension, then they offer relief. It's a formula. It never fails to satisfy. And Paul does the same thing here in this passage in Galatians. He presents us with the dilemma of the flesh. He builds the tension. And then he presents us with the solution of the the Spirit. He offers us relief. Does the same thing in the book of Romans. You read through the book of Romans in the first, first four chapters, Paul is just cranking us down on our sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, he just puts us in the vice and cranks us on our sin to the point where we are desperate. And then in chapter 5, he says, So now, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith in his promises... We can have real peace with him because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. He creates the tension of our sin and then offers us relief through our faith in Jesus Christ. Because of our relationship with Christ, because he's our Savior and we are the saved, we're reconciled with God and we have peace, peace with God. When you fully grasp the power of that phrase, peace with God, you'll experience more relief in those three words than the words you are cured to a cancer patient. 
or the words, you are free to a death row inmate. When you begin to understand the devastation that comes when you pursue the acts of the flesh, when you realize the inheritance that you lose when you pursue the acts of the flesh, when you realize the inheritance that you gain through the fruit of the Spirit, when you experience the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the the gifts that come from being reconciled with God, you will understand the relief that comes from peace with God. We're no longer subject to God's wrath because of our sin. Christ's sacrifice means there's no hostility between us and God. No sin blocking our relationship with Him. Peace with God is possible only because Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And that peace is delivered to us through the fruit of the Spirit. If you're living with fear and anxiety, if you're stressed out, if you want peace, not the kind that the world gives you, but the kind that that God offers you, then you need to trust in Christ's work on the cross and be reconciled to God. Forsake the sins of the flesh and let the Holy Spirit release His power through the fruit He wants to bear in your life. Let's pray together. God, we recognize our dilemma. We understand our tendency. And today we admit that you know us better than we know ourselves. You knew we'd do it. That's why you sent your son. That's why you sent your son to pay the penalty for our sin. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. God, as we move into relationship with you, as we allow your spirit to to regenerate us, to, to make us spiritually alive as we're born again through our faith in Christ, God, you give us the power, you give us the, the opportunity to resist the flesh and to bear the fruit of the spirit. If you're here today and and you've never unleashed that power in your life, I invite you just in this moment to, to just say, God, please come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Give me that new, abundant, eternal life that you offer through those who trust in Jesus Christ. God, give me the power to become your child because I believe in Christ. And God, we thank you that as your children, that your desire all along has been that we would become more and more like Christ. That you would be able to release more and more of the Spirit's power in our hearts and minds and lives. So that we could become unstuck. And that we could bear the fruit of the Spirit. God, thank you for that work in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.